0: Hey there, and welcome to In Sickness and In Health. I'm Cara Gale. Uh, This is a podcast where I talk to people about their weird bodies and things related to chronic illness, disability, healthcare, mortality, you know, the fun stuff. I've been sitting on this interview for a while, which I have a habit of doing because I have so much that I wanna say about it, and then I keep waiting for the words to come and they never do. So I had a super long day yesterday and I feel like garbage. Everything hurts and I'm dying. Um, And I don't remember any of what I wanted to say about this episode. So what better time than to record an intro (laughs) for it and finally, finally put this out there because it's a great one. I talked to Jennifer Brea. Uh, she is a filmmaker, she is an ME CFS patient that's myalgic encephalomyelitis or chronic fatigue syndrome, which is complicated and there's a whole thing about the name. Um, we don't really get into that. I knew that she had been doing press for the movie for about a year so a lot of times people need to make like a very basic case for why you should see their movie and I didn't wanna retread that ground, so we had a I don't know. We had a good conversation though. Uh <laughs> anyway, um I've had one other episode of this podcast with someone with MECFS who also made a documentary about it called Forgotten Plague. Is that right? This is me being transparent with uh, some of the cognitive issues that I have. Um, Right now they're actually not that bad, they can be much worse, but um, they're really hard to navigate and it's variable for me, which is also challenging in its own way. Um, And it makes doing this podcast on a regular basis really difficult. And so I'm sorry that I don't put out more regular episodes. I would if I could. Uh, I'm working on it, I promise. And um, oh, I got here because I was talking about Ryan prior. I talked to Ryan when I was at MetaX back in 2016. Um, I think I did more of the talking in that conversation, though, because he was holding the microphone because my arm was tired. Um, which kind of changes the dynamic of an in-person interview. Uh, he made a movie called Forgotten Plague. We wound up talking about kind of the crossover between M E C F S and Dysautonomia, specifically POTS. And Jen and I talk about that a little bit too in this conversation. So definitely Jen's movie is worth seeing. It's called Unrest. Did I even say that yet? Oh my God. Uh, it's called Unrest, it's really fantastic, um, it's intense. So if weird, difficult to diagnose medical issues are something that you have dealt with in your life, um, it can be super triggering. So just trigger warning there, it is very intense, I almost cried myself to death the first time I watched it, um, but is a hundred percent worth seeing. It's a beautiful film. And uh, yeah, I don't think you have to have seen the movie to enjoy this conversation. Um, I don't know. I actually wind up listening to many more movie podcasts than actually watching the movies because of my like weird sensory issues um, and migraines and stuff, so I don't know. Whatever. Do what you want. Jen's website is jenniferbrea.com. That's bre dot com. Her movie is called Unrest. It is streaming on Netflix, at least here in the United States, and you can find it elsewhere at unrest.film. Jen's on Twitter at Jenbreya. Uh, The website for this podcast is insicknesspod.com. Find us on social media at insicknesspod. And I hope you enjoy this episode. Thank you for listening. juice getting set up? (laughs) A little bit of it, (laughs) but I
1: think I'm going to be okay.
0: Okay. Well, welcome to In Sickness and In Health. Um, With me today, I have filmmaker Jen Brea, who uh, made the documentary Unrest, which is about MECFS. Welcome to the show, Jen. I loved your movie. Thank you. I'm so glad to be here. Yeah. Um, I wrote so many notes and I don't even know where to start. Um, I think a good place to start might be, um, do you have like a favorite scene or even just like a favorite shot from the
1: documentary? That is a really good question. Uh, my favorite scene in the documentary is when we go and visit the first person that I meet on this journey in the film. So the Mm -hmm. film is about getting sick um, and having my whole life changed and really being in this very scary and dark place. And then I meet a young woman named Jessica who um, got mono when she was 14. And um, after, over the course of about six, 12 months just got sicker and sicker and sicker until she ended up bedridden. And she ended up spending several years actually in a hospital and then um, was completely bedbound bound for uh, almost a decade. And so she lived her, uh, you know, so much of her childhood and her teenage years um, really growing up and becoming a person and learning who she was in this really unusual um, and oftentimes horrific context. Mm-hmm. And in the film, I ask her um, in part because when I first got sick, this was my question. I, I wanted to know, you know, how can I survive this? Like, do I need to get well to be a human, to be a person, to have a life that I wanted, or is there a way that I can, even in the midst of all of this, still hold on to something of myself? Because that's what I desperately needed to figure out how to do at the time. Yeah. And so I, um, I asked her in the film. I asked her. Know, how, you know, through all of that of being in the hospital, of not being able to speak, of waking up every day in the same the same room, the same bed, how did you stay sane? Um and she says, you know, I stayed sane by going to all of these places in my mind and um you we actually sort of, you know, visually travel with her uh to these coral reefs off the coast of Australia, um where which is a place that she's never been um, but she travels to in her mind. She imagines scuba diving and what it's like to be with a fish. And we get to sort of share that moment with her. And I've talked to a lot of people uh, living with my condition ME who um, are on the severe part of the spectrum and have spent a lot of time being home out in bedridden. And so many people I've come to find actually have that experience of, um, of, of, uh, uh you know in some ways traveling um in their own minds to these places where maybe they once went or or would like to go. Um and so I think that's a really special moment because it gives you the sense that this film might take you on a journey that you didn't expect. Yeah. Um and, and and also that, you know, um I really wanted to work hard to try to convey what might be a sort of internal um and slightly more like a stats, evocative kind of representation of what I thought all of the, you know, characters in the film, like what their inner lives might be. Mm. Um, Because I think it's so easy in film to look at this, you know, people who are disabled or who are sick, you know, from the outside and just sort of see our bodies as objects of pity as opposed to understanding that we have, really complex in our lives and are still human and want all of the same things um that we used to want even if we have to express them and dream them in slightly different ways
0: yeah well you nailed it <laughs> it definitely um read that way to me i, I saw it twice actually I Had this bizarre experience of watching it by myself when it aired on pbs and like crying myself to death, and then having the opportunity to watch it with a group at a chronic illness retreat with Suffering the Silence. Um, And the second time, like watching it in a room with a bunch of other chronically ill people was just so amazing, but also really bizarre. Um, And I realized the second time that I watched it that like, I completely forgot that there's a whole third act to the film. <laughs> like, in my brain, it ended where you're like moving out into the backyard to live in a tent. Like, I just remembered the movie ending there and like didn't record the rest of it in my brain. So, to like then see the rest of the film, but I'm getting ahead oh, of myself.
1: No. Were, you, were, you, were you just really bored or emotionally <laughs> oh, no, saturated? No, no, no. <laughs>
0: I think it, emotionally saturated is definitely the word for it. Yeah. Because um, it just, so much of your story is. Uh, my story, you know, and is the story of so many people that I've talked to. So I cried all sorts of different kinds of tears and just was <laughs> overwhelmed, I think, um, which is, is not uh, a criticism of the film at all. I think it's it's really it's worth watching multiple times, you know, regardless of a person's experience. But to loop back around to what was that girl's name that you said? Jessica. Jessica. Um, my favorite shot in the whole movie is uh when you had the crew shooting on location with her. It's like this extreme close up of her neck and you can actually see her heartbeat. Um, like her jugular vein is kind of rising and falling with her her heartbeat. And I like pointed at the scream and yelled the first time that I saw it because that is a sensation that I've had. That's something that I've observed in my own body. And I've tried so many times to document it and to get like evidence of it. Um, And so to like actually see it on screen and it's a beautiful shot um, was really moving. And this whole thing like started with you just trying to get evidence of your own experience, right? Of you like filming yourself and and then at some point, kind of expanding your your lens,
1: I guess. I mean, it really started. There were so many starts, <laughs> and and I guess since 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 like this is like the sixty minute version, I can, give, yeah. I can give you a little more time or a little more more of that nuance. I mean, I I, I think it's um you know I, I, the the first instinct was just to express, like to have a space to put. That grief and fear and pain and anger of you know when I was first getting sick, not knowing what was happening to me, not having a diagnosis, and and also of them being you know uh, disbelieved um, right. by the doctors um, who you know very clearly didn't have uh, any answers, any training, any 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 way to to help me. And so um, you know I think I'd always expected that when I got sick, which my mind was going to happen you know closer to to the end of my life um that uh you know it would be it would be like it was on television and and medicine would mobilize and if I had something complex or mysterious then like you know of course there would be a you know a doctor house type figure who would you know coordinate my care team and like you know get to the bottom of it a full team
0: of four people working full-time yeah (laughs) specifically on you yeah
1: exactly and um i uh, and and you know, and so I think it was um it was just really scary to be losing my life, yeah, um, and to not know you know to be falling and not know where I was gonna land and what that would be um and I also didn't know if I was dying, like I, yeah. I thought maybe I had a rare disease, and um that doctors just weren't able to. Uh, You know, diagnosed because they had never seen it before, Um, and so uh, the the but very early in the sort of um, uh, for early in my illness, I lost the ability to really read or write. I'd always been more of a writer, and so I started filming myself because you know normally I would have kept a diary, Mm -hmm. a written journal, um, and I still had that same need because I was always someone who would write in order to understand what I thought and felt about the world, um, and about my own experience. And that was always a way that I processed, um, whatever I was going through. And so, um, writing was no longer, um, accessible to me. And so, um, I had a friend who said, you know, why don't you just record yourself? I think he meant, I meant audio, um, but just record yourself, you know, do whatever is easiest. Um, and you know, maybe one day when you, you're feeling better. You'll look back on it and you'll have a record of what happened. Um, and maybe you'll write about it, um, when, when you can write again. And, and so that's really was my initial intention. Uh, it was just to, just to document what was happening. Um, thinking that I would want a record of it.
0: Right. So like, at what point did that turn into like,
1: let's make a movie? <laughs> yeah. Those are two very different things. Yeah. Um, you know, it was really going online and meeting, uh, You know, thousands of people um, who are the subset of the millions um, who, uh, like me, had gotten sick young um, and, you know, maybe it was in the 80s or the 90s. And decades later, we're still um, desperately ill, homebound, bedridden, and we're living online in this community. And uh, I, you know, before... All of this happened to me before I went to graduate school. I had spent some time working as a journalist, and I just just felt like, oh, my God, like this story is one that I would never have believed. Mm. I would never believe that it was possible that so many people could have been abandoned in this yeah. way by by medicine, by society, um, and in some cases by their own families. And so um, that was when I started to conceive of it as a social justice issue. Like mm-hmm. It would have been one thing if I had just been struck down by lightning, like <laughs> some accident of fate, but to understand that so much of what I was facing and the lack of options that I had was the product of, you know, a myriad of choices that the institutions that were meant to protect me had had made. Mm-hmm. Um, that I started to sort of see, sort of think of this as, as a systemic issue and decided to make a film. Um, because I, I think I believed, and I still do, that... A large part of the reason why this has been allowed to happen is that, you know, it's so hard to understand what it is to live like this, unless we're living in the home, unless this is your direct experience, and yeah. um, and so I really wanted a way to bring people, you know, into our homes and bedrooms and to see, you know, what it's like in those moments that most people never get to see. Yeah. Um, I
0: read that you developed a virtual reality project based on the film and i was just curious kind of like what did that entail how did that go like do you feel it was successful you know
1: oh those are hard questions um, yeah
0: i mean answer it however you want <laughs> uh,
1: well i mean so and i'm saying that because it's still a work in progress we haven't okay. released on a platform yet um but hope to later this spring and uh you know it the I um, I became interested, really interested in virtual reality um, after seeing a few pieces um, by a, a journalist named Nani de la Pena, and it, you know she was really doing a lot of pioneering work in virtual reality as documentary, um, mm-hmm. doing things like using um, you know 911 calls or sort of real life audio, and then um, using that as like the kind of narrative. Um, Script and soundscape for these sort of virtual experiences, and um, it was incredible to me how when you're in a virtual environment, uh, everything you see uh, is—I mean, everything is so present tense—and you're you're the user, you're the you're the either the observer or the the actor in the experience, and um, and so it becomes first person. Mm-hmm. It's not—it's less it's a question of like looking at a you know, a um, a film screen, you know, looking at looking at a screen in a cinema and empathizing with this story, like you would if you were to read a novel that you're really external to, but that you're observing and witnessing, it's like you're really inside the middle of it. And, you know, a lot of people describe this sensation of when you experience VR um, afterwards, it's, it's much closer to memory Like, I don't, it's less remembering, like, here's what happened in the film and more like, here's what happened when I was there. And I was, I'm really interested, interested in, in that kind of idea of presence. And, um, and so, and I, and I remember watching some experiences where what I, what I experienced was went beyond empathy, beyond emotion to something that was visceral um and that you can kind of feel in your body at a totally different level and so i wanted to experiment experiment with that and i saw a piece at sundance called um notes on blindness which premiered there i think two years ago now and uh it was it's a it brings you into the you know a kind of an approximation um a, a kind of representation of uh, uh the experience of, of a uh, a, a British theologian named um, John Hull, uh, as he's losing his eyesight, and the, I, it resonated with, with me so deeply, in part because I was still in that process of kind of grieving, um, the aspects of my body that I I had lost, mm-hmm. um, and I just just like this is the most beautiful thing I've ever seen. I really want to work with this team, so I reached out to the creators and uh, ended up developing this partnership with this um virtual reality company called audio gaming in in france um and uh we made a cg so computer generated virtual experience where you turn on the headset and then when you um rather rather you put on the headset and when you kind of quote wake up you're in um, my bedroom and it's a lot about the experience of um the sort of sensory symptoms of the disease, but also the experience of being bedridden and then sort of traveling to these other landscapes. And so it, it's inspired by my favorite scene in the film when we sort of travel with Jessica to Australia and that idea of, you know, when I was when I was bedridden, my dreams became so much more kinetic and my sense of time and space changed. And I yeah. wanted to try to capture that Um Capture that experience, um, and so that—that's—that's that's what unrest VR is. So I hope it'll be um, more widely available later this year.
0: Yeah, that's exciting. Um, is there a specific kinetic experience that you have often in your dreams? Like I dream that I'm running a lot, and I've literally never been able to run in my life, so it's really bizarre.
1: Yeah, I—I've definitely become like a superhero in my dreams. Like my <laughs> dreams no longer have like plot really like they're yeah. not they're rather you know I I, I, I think when I was ha- when I was like healthy I might have dreams where like things happen people talked to each other mm-hmm. and now in all of my dreams I'm like running at mountains I'm like flying I'm climbing I'm like engaged in some epic battle and they're all really fun but it's I almost <laughs> feel like my brain has like compensated for my lack of mobility by yeah um giving me these really intense Dreams and I and I was also really interesting. Was um, so, as I mentioned before, I was always more of a writer. And when I lost the ability to uh, read or write, I started to um, just watch pictures like look at pictures in bed on Pinterest all day long mm-hmm. or watch a lot of movies and looking at all of these images online because I couldn't read and I was in bed all day, every day. And was really bored. Um, And so I think it was the combination of like those visual inputs. But then because, you know, my, my sort of landscape was just this bedroom with like, you know, beige walls and like, you it was really kind of boring environment that was the same every day. It's almost like my Brain became hyperactive and started even when I was awake. I wouldn't dream, but even my kind of daydreaming was, you know, far more, um, you know, visual and vivid, um, uh, and and you know, with, with colors and motion and all of these types of things. And so I think there's a way that your brain does compensate when you're not using in it in other ways. And so it was it was sort of an interesting kind of uh, thing that happened that. I was actually really grateful for um, because it it definitely made it easier for me to to cope with that experience. Yeah, that's
0: interesting. I had never thought about it in those terms, but I've had a, a very similar experience. Um, when I first started having those like running dreams, they were running nightmares and I was running away from something that was trying to kill me. And it was like clockwork. Every single night I was waking up drenched in sweat like why do I keep having these nightmares that somebody's trying to kill me this is so weird Um, and then when I started unpacking it with my therapist we realized that like oh it turns out that like all of this experience that I've had of being gaslighted about my health for decades and you know uh, trying to get help for this extremely terrifying experience of my own body and then being told that that experience was not real. And I obviously don't have to explain it to you. Um, Turns out that that actually had created a a lot of post-traumatic stress that I was dealing with um, and then was kind of complicated by doing this podcast. On the one hand, it's been incredibly therapeutic to learn that like hey wait a minute it's not just me and that all of these other people out there have gone through this sort of thing but on the other hand hearing those stories um over and over again uh, it can be traumatic in and of itself so i'm just curious um if that's something that you've uh, struggled with in like having this movie out in the world i'm sure that you hear from people all the time of like how important it is to see themselves represented on screen and you know hear these harrowing stories from people
1: so that that's really interesting I I guess um so PTSD secondary trauma I I would say that definitely um the yeah I I I don't actually have post-traumatic stress disorder mm-hmm. in terms of the, the physical symptoms of the condition right and so I, I want to draw a distinction between people who suffer from PTSD and what I experience but there's right definitely... and I think
0: that there's actually like a uh, something missing in the diagnostic like I think that there's something else that isn't necessarily post-traumatic stress disorder as defined by the DSM um that I think a lot of people, who experience chronic health issues, especially if they go undiagnosed for a long time, there is a PTSD adjacent situation. Yeah. That happens.
1: No, totally. And there may actually be some people who, who come to meet the criteria. Um, mm-hmm. I just know, like I, I just, uh, um, but I, I just wanted to draw that distinction at the same yeah. time. I, I do to me, um, you know, my experience with, uh, medical professionals has been almost universally traumatic, um, sometimes in, in, in deep ways, sometimes in more minor ways, but it's definitely, um, you know, meant that I, every time I'm going and seeing a new doctor and I have to try to explain um, my condition, my symptoms, um, you know, not knowing if I'm going to be dismissed not knowing if I'm going to be believed, uh, it, it not knowing if my experience on a fundamental level is going to be valid, yeah. um, it 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 is just incredibly frustrating, especially when at this point I know way more about my disease than <laughs> yeah. any clinician, unless it's a clinician who specializes in the disease, especially because this is one that's not even taught, um, mm-hmm. and so it's it's just you know I have this constant experience of you know, seeing doctors, having them tell me what's in the textbook and just knowing, like, actually that's not true. Like, that's not right. a patient's experience and that's also not what the scientific literature says. But the but the doctor is sort of the expert in that situation and they've they've been trained and empowered to be experts over the body of knowledge over which they have expertise um, and that body of knowledge is that is not all knowledge. And so it, it's like this, this constant kind of, um, I think, navigating you know, which is not so dissimilar to what people who have to navigate boundaries of, like, race or, Mm -hmm. uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, ethnicity or gender um, or sexuality have to navigate when it comes to, like, self-representation in the world and in these contexts where you're trying to both, like, get what you want but also um, and and what you need um, uh, from someone who has power over you while you're also trying, you know, like, trying to sort of think about like, what do I say? It's like what I say right. in the film, like if you say, too, or what, actually what my husband Omar says, like if you say too much, um, they, if you say too little, they can't help you. If you say too much, um, then they, they think you're a mental patient, which is a poor choice of words on his part. But, but the, the sort of that idea of like, I, how much do I reveal or not right. about what I experience and what I know? And at what point are you going to tell me that what I'm experiencing isn't happening, isn't possible, isn't real? Um, and so I, it makes it so hard for me to seek care because I'm so afraid of of being in that emotionally vulnerable space and essentially being re-traumatized. Mm-hmm. Um, but when it comes to other patients, I think, in part because of that trauma um, that often happens in a doctor's office... Um, I I actually find the stories of other patients to be uh really comforting um to sort of you know see that these strange ways um in which my body behaves uh they're not you know they're not unique to me right? Right. That there are a lot of other people who have similar Issues and similar problems that they're grappling with, and so in those stories, and even in, even in the the hardest of stories, um, I find a sense of, um, I guess, kinship and mm-hmm. common cause and common experience. I, I feel less alone, um, and I think that has been a large part of how I have been able to to cope with this. Um, I think what is traumatic in terms of being in this community and being in this, um, you know, position also of being known to a lot of people and so receiving, you know, every day I I have people emailing me their stories. I think it's those stories of, of loss. Um, You know, I, I I get emails from people who, um, you know, are, you know, the loved ones who are left behind. Um, You know, my, my husband took his life, and I'm just trying to understand why. Um, and you know, as well as just the the fact, and I think this is also true in other chronic illness and disability communities. Um, there's a you know, we have a very high rate of suicide, and so mm-hmm. it's the first time I've met in my life when I'm in a community where you know, routine, routinely, I uh, you know, we lose people that we you know knew or knew of from the online community, and I think I think that. You know, it gives me a sense of um, urgency, you know, of, yeah. of, of the, you know, even though this disease is, quote, chronic, um, there are stakes uh, in terms of saving lives and um, also saving the loss of years that people uh, lose to this. Um, and, but it's, it's devastating, and I think that it's, um, every time it happens, it hits me in a different way and it's, it's just, it's, um, I think that's, I think that's a part that's really, really hard to handle.
0: Yeah. Um, so like, how do you deal with that? <laughs> mm-hmm. Like, are,
1: have you, do you
0: feel like you're dealing with that well or, um, is it like a, a struggle, I guess?
1: I mean, I, I think it's like anything. Um, you just have to, you know, I, I always um, try to talk to other people uh, who were also hit by it, <laughs> meaning, like, whenever, you know, when we lose someone, I, we usually, I usually end up talking to other people who knew them um, to kind of try to process through it. And, uh, um, but it's always hard. I mean, it, it, I think it's been out of that that I've, you know, I also have an organization, I started a nonprofit called ME Action and we've started to set up support groups and and are starting to think about like, what are, you know, how do you, um, uh, the caveat that it's still very early days, but we're we're really trying to sort of figure out how to set up better kind of networks and systems of support for people who um, may not, you know, may need to access that support virtually. Um, And so I think, you know, I think you talked to other people about it. Um, but I don't know. I mean, I, I guess, um, you know, I, I think the thing that I've learned over time is that I can't fix it and that that's okay. Meaning like, I can't just fix my body. I can't, I can't, you know, wave a wand and fix my body. I can't, I can't the world. I can't fix the hurt that other people feel. I can't fix the hurt that I feel. um And you know, I talk a lot about gr- grieving and chronic illness and, and the fact that it is this kind of constant process. And by that, it, what I mean is that the the sort of it's not like you, you know there are certain your, types of your events stages of grief. <laughs> yeah, like that never like you're, you're just like you spend your time like cycling through it like a, yeah. like a wheel. You know, it's like because it's yeah. sort of it's it's not it's not that. Um, uh, although interesting, interesting, someone told me that that was actually written not for, not for uh, 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 losing a loved one, but actually for grieving after a major illness or disability. That it was about oh, that's interesting. Grieving for yourself, I, I never yeah, knew, I that. knew that. Um, but the the you know I guess uh, coming to peace with the fact that like unlike a discrete event where you you know you you lose someone that you love and. Um, you grieve their, that loss and it comes to mean different things and you, you kind of heal from it. But with a chronic illness, you are always moving in and out of grief, right? Yeah. Like, you, you know, maybe you get sick, as Jessica did when you were a teenager, and then you adapt and accommodate to it. But then you're, you know, you see all of your friends graduate from high school, you're not there, right? And then it's like, that's this other thing to grieve. And then maybe you, um, you know, get married um, or not, but, you know, uh, and you 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 see your other friends have children and you can't. Like, I I think there's this way in which you go through life and and things will hit you that you didn't expect, things that you (laughs) didn't know that you should miss, um, mm-hmm. because you haven't lost them yet, um, although you already have, right? And so I think it was just understanding that those emotions are a normal part of the process and to not try to fix them or avoid them, but just to kind of feel them and recognize them when they come. Like, oh, hi grief, there you are again. And to and to, to, to not kind of struggle in it, meaning like flail around trying to, yeah. like, to escape Fight it. Fight against I think, it. Exactly. Because yeah. I, th- I think I used to do that more before with anything, that, you know, even before I got sick, but to, to realize that like, it's normal that you'll go in and out of states of grief and in and out of states of anger and, and, um, and to sort of be okay with it when it's there and know that it's going to leave and things will be okay again and it'll come again. Um, and it's the same thing with my body, right? Like, cause it's sort of a better times yeah. and worse times. And so trying to really maintain a sense of perspective when things are really bad, um, that, you know, that is temporary, just like the good times are also temporary. And frankly, that's life, right? Like that is the experience of being alive and there's nothing abnormal about that. And so those are just skills, um, I think, to learn.
0: Yeah. Important life skills. Um, Or even like, uh, because the experience that I've had is like of getting sick and then learning to live in my body all over again And then something else weird with my health happens. And then it's like, oh, shit, I have to do this, like, again. I have to figure out how to live in my body, like, in this whole new way. And uh, that's been very frustrating. But um, understanding that that's just what my life is going to be like, like, makes it easier, I think, each time it happens. And I'm like, all right, this is, we're doing this again, you know, instead of trying to, to fight against it. Um, something that, uh, really struck me after I watched Unrest for the first time, I was like sitting there on the couch, weeping, (laughs) my boyfriend asked me if I was okay. And I was like, yeah, I just forgot how fucking angry I am about all of this. Um, and it like re-energized me in a way that I had been feeling very burnt out, um, uh just with everything going on politically and with my own health and with my own attempts to access healthcare, and with seeing so many of my friends go through similar things, I had been feeling really burnt out and unrest, uh, unrested me <laughs> and like really like kind of lit the fire under my ass again. So I have to thank you for that.
1: Oh, my husband is going to be so happy to hear that. Um, the The title for the film came from a lot of uh, – it was a struggle to try to figure out like what you could oh, call the film. titles for
0: things are the the hardest part of any project, I think.
1: It, it, totally. It's so hard. And especially because it's like – the film is like a journey that encompasses so many different spaces. Yeah. So it's like yeah. – it's personal, but it's also historical, and it's like about – you know, it's a love story, but it's also about a community, and it's, like, it's, you know, it's about me, but it's actually also about a lot of other people, and it's, like, how do you, I I just was, like, uh, I don't know how to do this, and so um, (laughs) it was actually his idea, and I think a part of it is is it's, is we're trying to sort of figure out, like, how do you have a name for a film that is, um, involves, like, almost, like, counter-marketing in the Title So, you yeah. know, the, the common name for this condition is chronic fatigue syndrome, which is wrong not just because it's wrong on so many levels, it's wrong because <laughs> that's that's it's it's it sounds disparaging, it's like it's the wrong impression of the disease, but it's also like not actually a good descriptor of the symptoms we experience, like on some basic level. And so, mm-hmm. it's um, uh, and so we're like, okay, so so counter marketing in the name, but then also. I really I like this idea of like um, you know we're not just laying there in bed like there's there's so much going on that is subtle that you can't see and um, you know and that idea of kind of restlessness and and a desire to change things right and and so much of this really was about me you know I wanted the film to be a rallying cry I wanted it to inspire people to get involved to get active so um, yeah, I'm, I'm glad that you. I'm glad that you felt that anger. It's a lot to be angry about. Oh my um, god, there's so much to be angry about. I guess if I could ask you a question, like what? Yeah. What are you? Like what? What? What were those feelings that it kind of stirred in you? That you, like, you know, like what? What? what are the things? Like, what's wrong? What's, tell me what's wrong with the world?
0: Oh my God. How much time do you have? Um, I did. I made like a list of all the different kinds of tears that I cried. (laughs) I uh, cried sadness tears. I cried empathy tears. I cried like it happened to me tears. I cried rage tears. I cried about what a beautiful piece of art that you made. Um, I uh, cried relentlessly during the protest scenes and then i cried with hope and then i cried with more rage so it was like all of that all just a lot of crying (laughs) um i primarily express my emotions with tears apparently but um
1: what was your question well i guess um yeah i'm 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 curious um so your diagnosis
0: is... Oh, that's complicated. My primary diagnosis is Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome, connective mm-hmm. tissue disorder, dislocations, all sorts of wacky stuff. Um, and then, but because that's like, affects how my body produces and metabolizes collagen, which apparently is like a super important part of your body, uh, it causes all these secondary problems. So I have dysautonomia or Pots and some other dysautonomic issues. Um, I have a mast cell disorder. I have uh, pretty relentless chronic migraines, chronic pain of all sorts. You know, it's just it's actually kind of a comedy of errors inside my body at all times. So it's it's really complicated, and it took me 20 years to get a diagnosis and. It took me what felt like forever to figure out how to talk about it, because these are things that people have never heard of before, let alone, like, actually have the vocabulary for. So I, like, had started this podcast just, like, as a way that I could, like, figure out how to talk about this stuff. Um, But yeah, so it's complicated.
1: Well, I guess part of the reason I ask is because, you know, I'm I'm really interested in finding out how to you know f- firstly fight for you know my people um mm-hmm. and, and but also like i think a part of it, like it that 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 is so to me um you know deeply and, and and obviously tied to the much broader issue um that you know so many of us are facing yeah across these different communities and 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 you know what is the what is the the, the frame or the rally cry um, you know for for all of us because mm-hmm. I just I think if it were if, if if the if the cry was for all of us I think it would really, i think it could shape shake the world because there's so many people living oh it's um, unbelievable
0: it's just like it is absolutely unbelievable um my friend abby norman who has been on this podcast many times twice um she has a book coming out tomorrow actually called ask me about my uterus and it's like part like your movie Mm -hmm. it's like part memoirish part historical documents and you know an investigation into like what the fuck is going on um with specifically, you know, women's health and the health of people who have uteruses, but on like a broad scale, like why why has this been such an issue throughout history? Like this is nothing new. And there's just when I finished reading it, I was just like, again, that feeling of like I am so angry because this affects so many people like how do we burn this all to the fucking ground because this is it's unacceptable it's absurd and like I get like so frustrated that like this continues to happen and not just to like people who are getting sick for the first time but for those of us like you said every time you go to see a new practitioner you know you have to steal yourself for like what's it going to be this time you know like a they're not going to believe me b they're not going to know anything about my condition and you know i have that same issue every single time that i go see a new doctor and i just see it among so many of my friends and see it from so many people who respond to this podcast and it just makes me so mad <laughs> I don't know what to do about it
1: um well my my friend Maya Dusenberry who I think is also a friend of Andy yeah Norman's, has a book coming out tomorrow yeah Wait, tomorrow sometimes yeah that's the same day <laughs> doing harm and I uh, it's yeah. I mean, it's. I think what's exciting is that there are more people speaking out, and I'm hoping that these voices can all, and these these works, right, the the these films, these books can all start to um, create enough of a space where people start. You know, they can they start making those connections between these mm-hmm. stories and sort of say, oh, it's not just this individual story of this one woman or this individual story of this one condition. It's a, that it's actually something more. You know, these are all just reflections of something more profound and fundamental um, and systemic. And so, yeah. I'm, I'm hoping that that can start to happen through this storytelling and reporting. Um, you know, and and I, I'm also interested in. The sort of collaboration across diagnosis, because there are a lot of conditions where there is overlap, (laughs) and that overlap Mm -hmm. might be simply, you know, uh, in some cases, diagnostic ambiguity, where oh, I thought I had this one thing, but actually I have this other thing, where in some ways, you're you're, you know. With some of these conditions, your tendency to get diagnosed with that condition is highly correlated with whether you go and see an expert in that condition, right? Mm-hmm. And so, there are a lot of doctors that have these kind of like hammers, you know, and and yep. and everything looks coming. like a nail. Everything looks like a nail. So, like, how do we have start to have this conversation where it's like not just about um, uh, uh, that's about narrowing the time of diagnosis by actually helping doctors to consider other conditions that. Um, they may not be specialists in, but they should understand how to diagnose or at least be suspicious of, so that if, mm-hmm. if a patient comes to them, they can sort of say, "Oh, well, maybe you should also get. I should. Start, I should encourage you or send you to a different specialist to sort of rule out this other thing." Um, and Ehlers-Danlos is one of the one of those conditions. I think every doctor who treats any patients should, you know, be looking for Ehlers-Danlos in. In um, their patients, because we have the same comorbidities. Yeah. Um, you know, um, I have POTS. I also have mast cell activation disorder, um, and um, a lot of I know a lot of people in the MA community who have EDS, and so mm-hmm. it's it's um, it was actually a doctor who has been working in this space for probably about forty years, and I, I, I just I know so many people with EDS just because of the work that I do. Um, we're everywhere. you, you well, I, 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 had never heard of you before. Now I know, like, I well, neither feel, had I. I, but I feel like I, I feel like it's, it's kind of like buying a car, you know, or something. It's yeah. like, you just see it see it everywhere. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and so, uh, the, the, this doctor said, you know, patients, um, uh, you know, I find that my most severely affected patients are those who have EDS or who've just been diagnosed with EDS. Mm-hmm. His most his most severe ME patients, and so it's something in my community that we've always known as a risk factor. Um, but the the you know, and and in the film, um, Whitney Whitney, um, the young man who's like very very severely ill, he does not have downlos. Um, he has very severe ME, um, but his sister, who was functioning, does have EDS, and so does his father. And so I think they're going to. Is he the one um,
0: whose father is a researcher? Yes, exactly. Okay. Yeah. And
1: so I, I think we're going to find that there are these connections. Sometimes they are situations of diagnostic ambiguity, mm-hmm. and sometimes they're actually underlying biological connections. And so, but it, it's going to. If our researchers and our clinicians aren't engaged in conversation with each other, I think it's just going to take much, much longer time to figure out what those boundaries truly are um, or yeah. aren't. And you know, I just, I just, I, I have this theory that um, either all or a substantial portion of us have some type of connected tissue. Propensity that doesn't have a phenotype of Ehlers-Danlos, but right. has some of those same dynamics. So I, I don't have EDS, but I have I have I have everything else. <laughs> <laughs> I have everything else, but the hypermobility. And so it's like it's it's what is that, and is and is there an underlying genetic reason for it? So yeah. Um. But we just haven't we haven't done the work yet to answer those questions.
0: Yeah, that's for sure. And I mean, talk about like doctors not knowing anything about it or thinking that they know about it and really they had eight minutes in a pathology class back in medical school and never thought about it again Um, which was uh, my former neurologist I can't see him anymore because my insurance changed which is a whole other thing but um, when I brought, because I kind of had a doctor house myself I realized after watching several seasons of house like oh wait a minute no one's ever gonna sit down with a team of highly specialized diagnostic experts and spend several weeks specifically on my case so i took four years of latin i've seen every episode of of house like how hard could this be um (laughs) like started diving into the research and first was diagnosed with dysautonomia and then i said okay but then why do i have this because dysautonomia is another thing that shares a lot of different primary diagnoses people have it for different reasons so i wanted to know why did i have this thing that i've had symptoms of my whole life and so um when i started kind of narrowing things down and looking into eds i happened to go see my neurologist and and brought it up and he was like oh yeah that's the thing with the bendy fingers right I was like, uh, yeah, but there's like a little more involved there. And it was like every doctor that I brought it up with were like, oh, yeah, I remember learning about that in medical school. It's the bendy finger thing, right? And it just was kind of astounding to me that like, yes, technically this is regarded as a rare disease, but. The, the fact that like they had no information on it other than that and even when I used my doctor friend's login for um, up-to-date.com, which is where doctors get all of their up-to-date information on like the most recent kind of research oh I'm missing the word there but um, even the up-to-date article on it isn't great and that would be what they would turn to to learn more about it so it's intensely frustrating to me to know that like not only is there really poor education but even the resources that doctors have to turn to once they do think to start looking in the right places is like not very good
1: it's yeah. in my head I call it every time someone says up to date I call it in my head I edit it to out of date out of uh, date. Have you have you <laughs> are you leaving the consult room to go and you know do a web query at out of date? Um, I mean, because it you know I, I I get it's
0: it's a great it's, idea. The idea of up to date, where they can kind of compile consensus. That's the word I was looking for. Get like a research consensus on like what is the current understanding of these conditions and have them all in one database. Like that's an awesome idea but they, it's it's not a doesn't <laughs> doesn't execute very well
1: no it, it doesn't and I, mean, I won't get into the details of why our entry is so messed up but it's uh i'm just not sure who's writing these things because it, it's sort of it's um it's uh it it it, it just very frequently is a, like like I, I, extremely it, it, wrong information <laughs> well it's clear that a non-expert is yeah is writing it and so like it could even be like 80 to 90 percent the right information but then mm-hmm. the things that are wrong you're like no one would ever know that's not the case at all right. but it's like someone who uh is not an expert coming in and trying to read about something in which they are an expert and do their the best job they can so but that's kind of not good enough i think so um but and there's no accountability. It's a private company, yeah. so I, how you know it's used by basically all doctors. But then they're not. Um, it, there's just no clarity as to where this information actually comes from, or, or mm-hmm. what you do as a a researcher or a patient organization or anyone. If you if you if you you know feel that it's not accurately reflecting the state of the science. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, anyway. Yeah. Um, I feel like these are all really insidery things. Unfortunately, I'm assuming people are people listening to this podcast are probably, uh, you know, uh, it, people who have an interest in...
0: <laughs> yeah, I think the primary, like, when I was first kind of conceiving of the podcast, I was like, oh, I'll do it for, like awareness so people can understand these things better and and specifically for medical students and for doctors, maybe. Um, But the primary audience, I think, is people who are living with this stuff. And so um, that's actually really nice because we don't have to make the case for why these issues are important and we don't have to um, explain, you know, why living with a chronic health condition is hard. Um, and and so I I think not everyone who listens to this uh might have the like the technical um familiarity with things like up to date or whatever, but they have definitely um they definitely have experience that is illustrative of the fact that tools like up to date are not good enough. Um, for sure. Um, but I think we can start to wrap up. How are you feeling? I'm
1: doing okay. Yeah.
0: Okay. Um, I wanted to ask you about, you said in the movie that like your first love was film. So I want to, I want to hear more about that.
1: Uh, oh, in my bio maybe?
0: Uh, or maybe that.
1: <laughs> maybe. <laughs> it'd be a little, it'd be a little self-referential in a film to be like, my first love was film. <laughs> um,
0: That's true. Yeah. Uh, no, I, yeah. Uh,
1: Right. well i mean basically like my um you know i mean i i i loved both book but both both novels and and films and my my mother um just i mean she was a voracious reader and a voracious movie watcher and so i have so many memories when i was young of you know her taking me to the bookstore we would just spend like eight hours there like reading books and buying books and going home and reading some more Um, but we also went to the cinema a lot and so there was a a small independent theater I grew up in um, central Florida and there was a small independent theater called the Enzion where um, we would often go on the weekends um, to watch films and uh, independent films and foreign films Um, and then I also remember going not to the Enzion guys uh, if you're listening but to the uh, to like this, the local cinema flex and, uh, would, you know, we'd buy a ticket to go and see a screening at like two o'clock of some movie. And then we would emerge at like 9 PM, um, you know, having being able to do that. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I mean, like having only paid for one film, I'm sorry. I was a minor. Yeah. It's Um, it's not
0: legal, but, but, uh,
1: (laughs) but like, uh, you know, I, I, I just saw probably every movie, um, Uh, every kind of studio and independent film that you know got a a a wide release um uh you know from the ages of like six or seven until um, i went off to college and it you know for me um uh films were always this uh way of accessing uh experiences that were not my own and of you know dreaming of possibilities um in my life you know like he was like I wanted to grow up and be and what, what would life be like and um you know and of of kind of traveling to um uh you know places that uh I never been before but I always dreamed to go and so uh I, I used to love my, my, my mother loved, she loved old films and she also loved Chinese films and uh, um, so you know, saw like Razor the Red Lantern, which is a Johnny Mo film, The Last Emperor, which I did not <laughs> find out was a Bertolucci film until a very long time, like very long after the fact um, but uh, uh, and, and so I think I think uh, that really you know, sort of as someone growing up in a kind of not, you know, Central Florida just a lovely place to grow up. It's not really um very cosmopolitan place, at least it wasn't when I was young, and uh, it it just to be able to dream of these other other realities. And so, mm-hmm. I still think that's what filmmaking can be. It's it's you know you only have your own experience, but but storytelling is a profound way to to feel connected to others' experiences. And so I think that's definitely a part of um you know what brought me to filmmaking um, in this stage a moment in my life and what i hope unrest um has doubted will do for for the people who watch it
0: yeah i'll well, um thank you for uh saying like the perfect thing to end the podcast with
1: <laughs> Anytime.
0: A uh, real great assist there. Um, so thank you so much for uh, taking the time to talk to me and spending your very your limited resources with me today.
1: Uh, well, thank you for having me. This was this was this was a lot of fun, and it's uh oh, good. I think this is the first time I've, get, I've had a chance to to talk about the film. Um, uh, one of the first times where where you know it's a. I don't have to. I don't have to explain. It. We can go. You know, in. In in a deeper way and that's that's just the best that's wonderful Good. so thank you
0: I'm so happy to hear that I was hoping that we could do that so thank you yeah.